This is Her Story with Ashley Adams from B97.5 in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's an empowered podcast featuring East Tennessee's most influential women. Welcome to Her Story. I'm your host, Ashley Adams, and I am excited to feature a history maker for Her Story, Knoxville Mayor Madeline Rojero. She is the first woman to hold the office. Let's get a little insight as to how you got started. Where did you grow up? I was born in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh Both of my parents were born and raised there. And when I was in first grade, we moved down to O'Galley, which is about 20 miles south of Cocoa Beach. So Mm -hmm. first through eighth grade, I was there just across A1A from the beach. Oh, nice. And then when I was in high, then the economy fell. My dad was a plumber. And so he lost his plumbing business. And so we moved up to Ohio to a suburb of Dayton, Ohio called Kettering. So I was in high school there in Kettering. And then I went off to college and ended up living a lot of places before I ended up here in Knoxville. Were you in any, like, were you class clown or class president? Did you you have any inkling that you might like government or anything like that? Well, I never predicted I would be mayor, but when I was in high school, I was very involved. I went to a Catholic school with nuns and priests who were actually very progressive. They challenged, I was in high school from 66 to 70. Mm -hmm. So it was during the civil rights movement, the women's movement, uh, Vietnam War, all kinds of things were going on. And our teachers challenged us and they were very social gospel oriented. Mm -hmm. And so we had a lot of great conversations. We had, even though it was at the time an all white high school, it's a suburb was predominantly white at the time. The fair housing legislation actually passed sometime around then. And I can remember the priest talking about it and welcoming it and talking about what a good thing that was at at church. But it was, a I think the year after I left was when it was first integrated, um, Mm -hmm. the school was. But we had nuns and priests who introduced us to kids from other parts of town and who challenged us on all kinds of issues. So I became very engaged in thinking about political and social issues when I was in high school. I did, you know, and thinking back in my senior year, I was mayor for the day in, in the city of Dayton. They had, uh, I think one person from each high school was invited to, can't even remember what program it was, mm-hmm. but uh, we were all assigned different positions. Some were council members and I happened for some reason, I don't know how, I was appointed the mayor for the day oh. and we had a mock council meeting. <laughs> but even with that, I didn't set that necessarily as my goal yeah. at the time. But you got a taste of it then. Yeah, by a little taste <laughs> of the power, yeah. <laughs> Did you have, okay, they used to call me Bubblegum. That was my nickname because I chewed Bubblegum all the time. Did you have a nickname in school? I'm sorry I didn't. No. And Madeline, I was always called Madeline. I wasn't called Maddie or no no nicknames. You prefer Madeline? I do. I like Madeline. Well, what do your grandkids call you? Grandma. (laughs) (laughs) Or Grandma Madeline, my little four-year-old. He calls me Grandma Madeline because he has a Grandma Trudy as well. What's the nicest thing the little ones have said to you? Well, uh, actually, the little four-year-old who calls me Grandma Madeline, he told me just this past weekend, he said, um, he said, my dad told me that you're the mayor of Knoxville. And I said, I am. He goes, wow. And I don't think he even actually knows what that is, but the way it was told as if it was something important. (laughs) That means grandma does not get any tickets. And actually when my, my grandson Silas, when he was in elementary school, he's now a 13. When he was in elementary school, apparently some little kids were 
giving him a hard time, kind of, you know, razzing him a little. And he apparently said, because um, you better not do that. He said, my my grandma's the mayor and she'll have you arrested. <laughs> and we said, well, what did they do? And he said, they didn't believe me. <laughs> Here's her picture on the yeah, website. They didn't believe me. <laughs> what was the you had to use a different tactic. <laughs> uh, so you've got a lot. You really love a lot of your family. That's the one thing I like about you. Oh, yeah. You talk oh. about them. I see them. I know who they are. Uh, let me ask about growing up. Were you close with mom and dad then? Oh, yeah. We had a very close family. My mom and dad, my brother and sister. We have, I have 68 first cousins. So. Whew. I ha- I have a we come from a big family. My mom was one of ten. My dad was one of seven, mm-hmm. and they all had big families. We were the ones that only had three, um, <laughs> so we were in the smaller groups of cousins. But we grew up doing down in Florida, particularly doing uh, camping, fishing, boating. Lots of kids in the neighborhood. Everyone kind of came over to our house. Mm-hmm. My 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 mom and dad were both very welcoming. We also had always had foster brothers and sisters oh, yeah. or relatives who needed a place to stay for mm-hmm. a while. Yeah. So we always had a, you know, a lot of stuff going on at the house. Uh-huh. So it was, was little fun. Madeline a Girl Scout? Do you know, a I brownie? was, uh, no, because uh, I remember, you know, where we lived, it was really, we had palmetto bushes behind us. It yeah. was really undeveloped. It was, it was becoming developed uh, there 20 miles south of Cape Canaveral just across A1A from the beach and you could ride your beach buggy. It was before everything was built up along the the coast there. So we always went hunting and fishing and camping and all the stuff that the Girl Scouts might do. (laughs) My mother taught me to sew. Uh, She she had a little sewing club. So all the girls came over and we learned how to sew. The nuns taught us how to knit. So the things that uh, I had girlfriends in school who were part of the Girl Scouts, but because we were so active and doing so many things ourselves, I never had the time to do Girl Scouts because yeah. I was learning a lot of those wonderful skills yeah. right at home and in the neighborhood. Now, you mentioned A1A in Cape Canaveral. Did you yeah. see any of the launches? Or have you ever met an astronaut? My memory of a young person being growing up there is sitting around the kitchen table uh, for dinner and all of a sudden hearing some little boy on a bike riding down the street saying, Missile! missile and we'd all drop what we were doing drop our forks and knives run outside and the whole neighborhood would be in their front yards and you could look up and you could see the missile coming down the coast and as it would throw the different stages yeah you could see that so our life was really revolved around the idea of of being close to the cape and the space program at at elementary school we set up a tracking station Mm -hmm. And so we could actually follow, you know, because so many of the parents were, my dad was a plumber. We, we built the houses for the scientists <laughs> to live in, yeah. but so many people had scientists and engineers as parents. And so they set up the whole tracking system so we could hear the, whatever was coming out of mm-hmm. um, NASA. Then uh, we moved away and we're living in Ohio when they had the launch where they, um, walked on the moon okay i came back for that okay and girl my girlfriends from my youth my one friend her dad worked at the cape so we actually ended up at a special viewing place to watch you know that launch wow. so so that was part of my sure. upbringing i still have actually the special pass we had you know oh. for the moon launch yeah how fabulous yeah it's pretty cool oh now were you popular in school or <laughs> well <laughs> 
Uh, I was not unpopular. <laughs> I had a lot of friends, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, we had a good group of folks in school. And yeah. in high school, I was involved in a lot of activities. And mm-hmm. I think I was, you know, I wasn't the president of the class. I ran for one of the other offices. and But, yeah, I think, you know, I had a lot of friends and actively engaged in a lot of things. Ah, very cool. Did you go to the proms? Yes, I did. And who did you go with? Well, you I have remember? to tell you my... Well, I do. I, 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 I can remember my first prom as a sophomore. Yeah. I had really, really long hair, like way down my back. And yeah. so I wanted my hair put up sure. in a high like you do for uh-huh. prom. Uh-huh. So my mother took me to the beauty parlor and uh, it took a while and they're putting all this hair up, up, up. And finally, the hairstylist kind of shrieks because she doesn't know what to do because she has all this hair left. So I ended up going to the prom this pretty dress that my mother made for me. Uh-huh. I went, you know, I was a, a sophomore and I went with a junior or senior, I forget which, but it was a big deal oh, for sure. a sophomore to go. But my hair was so high, I looked like Marge Simpson, you know, with <laughs> because they, they had so much hair, they didn't yeah. know what to do with it. Yeah. I was mortified, but there's nothing I could do about it. So needless to say, I've never had my hair put up like that again. Yeah. But, um, but I went, yeah. <laughs> All three years went to the prom. It was fun. (laughs) College life. What was that like for you? So freshman year, I went off to Temple University Mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. I'd never been in a, lived in a big city like that. And I lived, there was the, the traditional dorms. And then there was kind of the non-traditional dorm, which is several row houses connected together. And uh, it was a whole different style. And I lived in that dorm and made some wonderful friends there and really enjoyed being in Philadelphia and being at Temple University. Yeah. Uh, I only stayed one year because it was being an out-of-town student was expensive for my parents. And so after that one year, I ended up coming home uh, and uh, did a semester at our local community college and then went to Ohio State. Okay. So I went to Ohio State for my Basically, my sophomore year, then I took a year off, became financially independent, worked, went back as a junior. Mm-hmm. And then after my junior year is when I joined up with uh, Cesar Chavez and the farm workers. Okay. And started working on the boycott of grapes, lettuce, and gala wine. <laughs> and uh, that's back in 74. Yeah. Yeah. Then went out to California, followed the harvest, and were involved uh, working with farm workers. Oh, that is amazing. It's pretty amazing. It's so experience. interesting to hear you talk about becoming financially independent as a woman mm-hmm. in that time period. Really, that that has some vision, some forward motion to that. Interesting. I never thought about that, but I wanted to be not dependent on yeah. my parents. I had a great relationship with my parents, yeah. but I did not want to be financially dependent on them. So I established my financial independence and and went back to school paying for it my own and, and was able to get aid, you know, some aid and all, but I knew I wanted to do it on my own. (laughs) That is cool. Let me ask, what was the very first job you ever had? Well, of course, babysitting. I always (laughs) babysat. But the first job where I actually got paid a paycheck Mm -hmm. was working at my high school during the summer. I was an incoming sophomore, I guess, and I was working with some seniors and we had to take the big fiberglass curtains that hung on all the big school windows. Yeah. And we hand washed them in oh, the cafeteria. Wow. 
I came back itching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's probably not allowed today. I don't know if that stuff is banned or <laughs> or you'd probably have to wear masks yeah. and stuff. But we hand washed, got a dollar an hour. And we hand washed <laughs> wow. those big, huge curtains uh-huh. in the sinks in the cafeteria. Uh-huh. And then I, in high school, I worked at a local furniture store, did secretarial work. Yeah. Those yeah. were my first couple of jobs that weren't babysitting. So you got something to fall back on. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I can always wash big old curtains. <laughs> but let's, now let's move forward. How did you get into political life and that career? Now, I know you mentioned the grapes and things like that and the wines mm-hmm. but and the farmers, but how did you start clearing the way in that path? How did that become a vision for you? So leaving the farm workers, you know, I learned a lot with the farm workers about how to organize, how to community organize, how to mm-hmm. uh, how to engage with people, share your message, understand what the concerns are, and really move an issue or a set of beliefs forward. Sure. So when I left the farm workers, my husband, my first husband, who was also working with the farm workers, when when we left in seventy seven, we ended up in Greenville, South Carolina. So I had three years of college. Yeah. By that time, I had a child who was a couple years old, and I went back to school and got my undergraduate degree at Furman University. Okay. And so at Furman, I decided to major in political science, and I was pregnant during my last year. So by the time I graduated, I had a one-month-old, and I had a four-year-old. Yeah. So I had a political science degree. I had this experience with the nuns and priests in school to really direct me towards social issues. And had worked with farm workers, which is really a social justice issue as well, helping farm workers get decent wages and working conditions. Absolutely. So that was the kind of background that I had. So shortly after I got my degree, my husband was transferred to Knoxville. Okay. So we moved here in 1980. Yeah. And so I worked with a nonprofit called the Youth Project. Okay. And that was headquartered in Washington, D.C. And the purpose was to work with emerging social change organizations in the region, help them, give them small seed grants and connect them to the big funders in D.C. and New York and other places, the Rockefellers and those kind of funds. So I worked there as an administrative coordinator. Basically, I was the finance person and the secretary and the front office. You know, I, I was the only administrator there. So it was a small office and it connected me with a lot of the social change things going on in the in the region, affordable housing, environmental work, groups like Save Our Cumberland Mountains yeah. at the time, remember Sockham? Sure, absolutely. They were one of our early organizations that we funded and, and were the 501c3. We were the fiscal agent yeah. for some of these groups. So I was getting immersed in the organizations and issues of the time here in this region, in Knoxville, in this region. Meanwhile, an event happened in our neighborhood, which made me aware of planning, of zoning and planning and and the Metropolitan Planning Commission. And as my neighbors and I worked on this issue, I got to know some of the planners at MPC. And I realized that that was really a wonderful career opportunity as well to go into city planning. So I ended up getting my master's in city planning. So in all of this, I'm not realizing that I'm going to go into politics. I'm realizing that I'm what my interest in is how to how to make this a better community to live in, a better neighborhood, a better city, a better region. I was involved in timing wise. I ran for county commission in 1990. So I left uh, TVA. It was only a a temporary job. Mm -hmm. 
and I started working, you'll enjoy this, with, I was recruited to work for a group called the Coal Employment Project. And that was a group of women coal miners. It was a support network. Wow. It had actually been founded in Knoxville. There was a group of public interest lawyers who were going to a coal mine to investigate, to look at it. And the coal company said, sure, you can come in. But the women can't go in. The women lawyers cannot go down into the deep mine. Okay. And they're like, okay, well, how come? And they said, well, it's a it's superstition to have that if a woman goes in the mine, something bad will happen. And oh. that's what kind of raised the where, okay, so these, these coal companies have these big contracts with a federal agency with TVA, uh-huh. and yet they're discriminating against women being hired. So the public interest lawyers say, okay, that's cool. The men will go down. The women will go back to the office. So the women went back to the office and they started looking into it and they ended up having a class action lawsuit, yeah. which required TVA and other companies like that to hire women. And oh. so this was wow. um, before I came on board, it had been on a few years. I joined in um, 88, I think it was, mm-hmm. as the director. So the original director, Betty Jean Hall, who had been the founder of all this, she <laughs> ended up leaving after some after 10 years. And then I was recruited to be the new director. So my job at the time then was to manage this network of women across the country wow. who worked in coal mines. So I traveled around the country to different coal mining areas to help support those women who were in the mines. And, and we worked closely with the coal miners uh, yeah. union. They were very supportive of this effort. So I did that for a couple of years. And then <laughs> early in the year of 1990, I had been involved in a couple of campaigns helping some other Democrats mm-hmm. uh, run for office. But in 1990, I uh, had a call from a man uh, who said, you know, this other guy and I were thinking about you and want to encourage you to either run for office or to run my reelection campaign. The person who called me was Bill Owen. He was a yeah. state senator okay. at the time. Yeah. And I said, well, I don't think I'm qualified for either. <laughs> and he says, that's, yeah. that's something to think about, right? right? Why would I say that? I had all this experience, yeah. a master's degree, had worked in all these different organizations. And my first reaction was, I don't think I'm qualified. And he said, yeah, I think you are. Take a look at it. Do some homework on it. And you'll see that you are. Let me know. So I started looking into it. And I guess I was ready to leave where I was working. And I started talking to friends. And, you know, one friend said, you know, why would you want to be a part of that county government? Another person said, who was a very much an activist, he said, seize the power (laughs) such that it is on county commission. Yeah. Yeah. And another woman said, you know, if you're going to do all that work for an election, make it your own rather than doing it for somebody else. Absolutely. (laughs) So I, at the the last day you could file, I decided to file. And here's the deal. I'd be running against an incumbent who had been in office for 24 or 26 years, something like that. You know, the newspapers, most people thought, there's no way. Who is this little girl? Yeah. There's no way that you can take on somebody that's been there that long. Yeah. And like, who are you anyway? You've only lived in town 10 years. Who are you? Well, my opponent didn't know that I had kids in the school. So I had been a part of the PTA, PTOs. I'd been at the ball field for years with the kids playing t-ball, you know, on Mm -hmm. up. I'd uh, written my thesis in planning school on how to foster civic leadership and participation in Knoxville. Hello. I'd been involved with the League of Women Voters. So I'd Mm -hmm. been involved in a lot of stuff. But this particular 
incumbent commissioner wasn't connected with all that. Yeah. So he thought I was this pretty little girl. And so <laughs> that's all. I didn't think I was a threat. And we decided just to run a, a grassroots campaign like I learned from the farm workers. Yeah. Knock on doors, make phone calls, go to events, shake hands, you know. We raised $6,800. <laughs> that was all we raised that first time. Yeah. And I was wow. able, with that, I was able to rent a little office space. And it's now the tattoo parlor on Broadway. <laughs> and I always say that our office is now upgraded to a tattoo parlor on Broadway. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. And we hung a banner, you know, vote for Madeline and all. And we started doing something called human billboarding. Mm-hmm. And we had done that with the farm workers where we would hold signs and stand by the road and wave and make eye contact. So we did that. Vote for Madeline. Uh, lots of people came out. Nobody had seen that in Knoxville before, apparently. Sure. So I won the primary. I actually had an opponent in the primary. And then in the general, I, of course, ran against the incumbent. Mm-hmm. So on Monday, we got out on Broadway at Cecil, that intersection, which yes. is kind of the heart of my district. Right. And we started waving to people. Yeah. And people are kind of like, what is that? When they go by, they kind of right. didn't put it together. Yeah. The next day, we're out there during morning rush hour. There she is again. Vote for Madeline. By Wednesday, people are looking for us and waving and honking. Wow. The buses are honking, you know, so we're starting, you know, the pickup truck crowd was great. They could give us a great response. <laughs> That's going viral. <laughs> yeah. It, this was all before yeah. social media, yeah. right? Yeah. So I uh, went viral just by word of mouth and- by election day, people were honking, clap, you know, my mom voted for you. Somebody oh, yelled and all this stuff. So you yeah. could see that was the momentum. Mm-hmm. This was before early voting as sure. well. So everything was on election day. I should go back and tell you that during the campaign, when I did see my incumbent, he was very gentlemanly. Mm-hmm. And the few times that he was out active and campaigning, uh, he would be talking to a friend and I'd come up and he'd say, have you met my opponent, Madeline? Isn't she pretty? Ah. And so negative. it's very subtle. It's a compliment, but it's a very subtle. Yes. Right? But what I would do, I didn't get upset. I figured I just smiled and I thought and just smiled as pretty as I could. Because <laughs> I thought as long as he thought I was this pretty little girl, he would underestimate me, right. which is what he did. Yeah. And uh, there was also a ward boss at the time named, named Bobby Tool. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember him. Mm-hmm. He presumably, he was a businessman, owned some convenience stores. And the rumors were that he, you know, he controlled certain, the, the rep, he had a reputation of controlling certain precincts. Okay. You know, that when people, when Bobby told somebody to vote for such and such, mm-hmm. you know, that's who they'd vote for. So I had never met Bobby Tool until I went to a reception and, and he was there at the table and somebody introduced me to him. And Bobby looked at me and he says, oh, you're, now he's the Democrat ward boss. Right? Yeah. He says, you're that little girl who's running against our boy, Jess. Oh. And I said, uh, yes, sir, I am. Yeah. And he said, you know, you take that money that you've been raising and you go buy yourself something with it. And next time you ask permission before you decide to run. <laughs> so what do you think I did? I smiled as pretty as I yeah, could <laughs> and said, it's nice to meet you, Mr. Tool. I said, I'm staying in the race. Wow. And I went back to my friends and I said, we're not just running against Jess. We're running against Bobby Tool as well. You yeah. Know, that kind of revved people up. Yeah. So in the end, on election day, so we had built up with all the other things we had done. The new Sentinel wrote a very nice editorial, but they didn't endorse me. 
Harry Moskos later apologized for that. He was there at the time. He says, oh, we were wrong on that. But uh, Barry Henderson was the editor at the journal at the time. Yeah. And Barry, you know, Leslie and Barry. I sure do. Yeah. yeah. And so Barry said to me, Madeline, we're going to endorse you. He said, but we don't think you're going to win. Oh, oh. <laughs> and I said, well, why fire. do I know? And I'm like, why yeah. do you think, Barry? And he goes, well, it's just everybody. I mean, everybody knows Jess. He's been there for so long. You know? mm-hmm. So we had a landslide victory. Yeah. I won every single ward and every single precinct, right? Call mm-hmm. wards in the city. My opponent's wife, she said, she was quoted as saying, we don't know what happened. And I and they didn't because they didn't realize that we were out there active and, and really engaged. So to me, the lesson is <laughs> no incumbent is safe. You know, you can get out there. And, and it wasn't a negative campaign. He didn't say bad things about me. I didn't say bad things about him. Right. I just outworked him. I had a lot of volunteers and we just outworked him. So anyways, it was a great experience, but I kind of got in there. Um, I sent my kids away to camp at Wesley Woods during the week of the of the actual vote because my daughter, she said, you're going to win, mom. Oh. And I said, well, honey, I, I might, but I might not. You're going to win, mom. I said, well, why do you think I'm going to win? She said, you have worked too hard not to win oh. this race. And I thought she would be so disappointed <laughs> if they were there. So I thought we'll oh. send them off to camp. And yeah. But they called me that night and all the kids at camp were waiting to hear the results. Of course, they were yeah. all happy about it. That's a long way of saying I got into politics. I had a background that yeah. prepared me for it. But I got into it because, in this case, a, a man, a friend, encouraged me to do it. Have you, know, you been I, a good mayor? I hope I've been a good mayor. I've, uh, I guess, uh, history and, and the public will, t- well, I was reelected yep. uh, with no opposition on the ballot. Right. I had a write-in candidate, so I yeah. think I had 98.5% or something yeah. of the vote. But again, some people will say I've been a great mayor. Others will say I've been awful. They can't wait till I'm finished. Yeah. <laughs> I see both on the internet. And then what's next for you? Uh, I don't know. Okay. Yet. At this point, oh, I am not, not going to tell me. No, no. I am telling you the truth here. I've been very truthful with you yes. throughout this entire interview. I will be 67 and a half when I'm finished. Yeah. That's a good age. That's a, good That's age. a great age. Yeah. Uh, in my prime. Yep. I want to take a long vacation. Okay. All right. Because, you know, when you're mayor, oh, yeah. it's 24-7, truly, 365 days a year. You're always on call. There's always stuff. I mean, so so is most of my team, by the way. Yes. <laughs> Constantly on call. So we could be you know, communicating on a Sunday morning or Sunday night or any time of the day or night throughout the year. So I would like to have a vacation, a little little balance. At this point, I do not have my sights on another elected office. Never say never. That could change. But I I truly don't at this point. One thing I do want to do is figure out how to take all that I've learned from the farm workers to the coal miners to working at UT and the Community Partnership Center, to being head of Knoxville's Promise, the Alliance for Youth, to being the community development director at the city and then being mayor. I've learned so many things. Yeah, I'd like to package that somehow and be able to help people, whether it's a consulting, mm-hmm. uh, consulting oh, with yeah. groups or I work with several national organizations now. I mean, we're a part of and some of them ask mayors to come in and, and do consulting with them. So I'm just kind of weighing all of that right now. Mm-hmm. I figure I'll be in an age where I've got some options. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah. Advice for young women who say, oh, I want to be mayor too. What would be your advice? 
poor young gal, maybe 10, 12 years old. Be prepared. Know the community. Pay a t- vote. Number one, vote. Yes. <laughs> I love it when people run for office and they've never voted in a council <laughs> election before or whatever. Uh-huh. So vote, get engaged, prepare yourself. And then when the time is right, you know, and there are training programs, leadership training, facilitation, mediation training. There's all kinds of ways that you can better yourself to be a better citizen in the community. Sure. And then also a better elected official. So engage in that and uh, get to know those in office. And they're usually, I know I, I meet with a lot of people and share what I know and and uh, offer encouragement or advice to those who might be thinking of mm-hmm. running. So do you feel like you broke a glass ceiling? <laughs> <laughs> I do in terms of being mayor. Yeah. Interestingly, when I ran when I ran for county commission, when I won county commission, I was the fourth woman ever elected to county commission and those other 3 mm-hmm. were there at the time. Mary Lou Horner, Wanda Moody, and Beta Selm. Oh, Great women. Yeah. Republican women. Yeah. So I was the first Democratic woman. I didn't realize that until <laughs> I won. <laughs> sure. But when I ran for mayor, the uh, first time I ran uh, was when Bill Haslam and I ran, and there were a couple other folks. Yes. And so it really came down to Bill and me. And, of course, he raised four times as much money as yeah. we did. And he ran, I give him credit, he ran a really good grassroots campaign. He mm-hmm. he, he ran the kind of campaign that I run and yeah. ran. Mm-hmm. And so he won by about six percentage points. Okay. So I always say he won fair and square, but he didn't win by much. <laughs> He always gives me that. Of course, he later asked me to work for him, and I was his community development director for four years, which was a great honor. But in that campaign, it was the first time a woman had been that competitive, down to the wire, the the two of us. And the interesting thing was there were still people saying, is Knoxville ready for a woman? Some people said that. And even my supporters, there's one hairstylist, and he told me that in his shop, they were all talking about me and how they supported me. But the whole debate was, should she dye her hair? Is there too oh, much gray? Wow. How should she wear her style? Does she need more makeup, less makeup? You know, all these things. They were always, you know, what should she wear? And so at one point we were joking that we should have a page on our website that said, dress Madeline, you know, and have different, you know, <laughs> what do you think she should be wearing? Yeah, yeah. But in the end, because I did do so well, yeah. And people said, wow, Knoxville, maybe Knoxville is ready for a woman. Considering I was outfunded and, and this and that, mm-hmm. I still, and running against the biggest philanthropist in town, wonderful yeah. family, yeah. that we did so well. So by the time I ran again in 2011, eight years later, mm-hmm. the very first forum at the time, Marilyn Roddy, who was a councilwoman, she was in and I was in, mm-hmm. and uh, Ivan Harmon and Mark Paget, those are the ones in in the beginning. After the first forum, which is about neighborhood issues, Several people came up and said, okay, we know it's going to be a woman. Which one? Because oh. things had changed. You know, people weren't questioning, could a woman do the job? Right. They were saying, okay, actually, the two women were stronger in that forum, in that particular forum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but things had changed. So here's another message to women and to any candidate, really. You may not win the first time, but if you have a good showing and you're graceful in defeat, yes. there's always an opportunity for, again, if you choose to do it again. And I think how you lose says a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I chose to immediately turn around and give my support to Bill Haslam. I wanted him to be successful because I wanted our city to be successful. Right. And all that then determines whether or not you position yourself for a future election. Mm-hmm. Mayor Madeline Rojero, how do you want to be remembered when some little kid picks, goes out of Wikipedia or checking the Internet and goes, 
Oh, Knoxville's first female mayor. What should it say next? I hope it says that under my leadership, we became a more welcoming community. Uh, One of the things that we have really tried to do was address all kinds of divisiveness and and prejudices. We try to be inclusive, more diverse, inclusive, and welcoming. And that's one of the things. We've also really pushed for a greener Knoxville. You know, we've worked on things like stronger neighborhoods, a, a vibrant economy. We work closely with the business community. We have a really bustling downtown now. But ultimately, I think our community is best served and we're thinking long term in terms of our sustainability and when we're a welcoming, inclusive, diverse community. And I hope that that's what I'm remembered most for because that's what has meant the most to me. You're listening to Her Story and we just featured Knoxville Mayor Madeline Rojero. And coming up next, I'll be featuring a woman who feeds this area, although she'd probably rather sing to you. Coming up next on Her Story. You've been listening to Her Story, an empowered podcast featuring East Tennessee's most influential women.